Last week we came up through chapter 50, and I might remind us that there is not just a disjointed group of poems or songs here that were written, but there is a story flow in the book of Psalms. In fact, we just sang uh, Psalm 2, which indicated the glory that is to come and how Christ will reign over the earth. So Psalms 1 and 2 uh, begin with an overall viewpoint of God's plan, and then you deal with everything in between until that comes into fruition. So here we have in chapter 50, I want to just briefly go back. Uh, Chapter 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God has shined. Our God shall come and not keep silence and be a consuming fire, and it will be very tempestuous. So we have a projection here, not of just the tempest that would be through the history of man until Christ returns, but a bit of an insight as well into how things will wind up at the end. And in particular, we always have to keep the church, uh, spiritual Israel in mind, uh, because the prophecy of physical Israel and the prophecies for the church always march hand in hand, as we all know, having gone through so many scriptures along these lines over the past 15 years. But let's pick it up here at the end of chapter 50 again and review this. Uh, Not, I don't want to go back and review all the conduct, but let's pick it up in uh, verse 20. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Uh, These things have you done, and I kept silence, uh, though you thought that I was altogether such as you. We tend to sometimes think that we think like God, and sometimes our thoughts are very far from His. His are much higher than ours, He says. Now consider this, you that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. We could almost be reading Revelation 2 and 3 here, especially 3 uh, in the Laodicean condition, where He says if we don't wake up and do what needs to be done, that we will be torn or spit out, to use the analogy that is there, but it's essentially the same thing. Little pieces, whether you're torn into pieces or chewed into pieces and later spit up, it's about the same uh, situation. So, lest we be forgetting God in our hearts, he makes this warning. And I started there with the slander because we all still do it. And that is a very quick way to indicate that God would include us in this context. Uh, He says here in verse 23, Whoso offers praise glorifies me, and to him that orders his conduct correctly will I show the salvation of God. So it boils down to our conduct determining whether we receive salvation or not. Let's for a moment consider that term, conduct. What does conduct have to do with? How you conduct yourself, where? Essentially, among people. If you were on a desert island alone, your conduct would not require much attention, because... 
There's no one there to do anything to, for, or against. You would simply be alone. And what you did would only really involve you, and it would not help or hurt anyone else. So when he talks about our conduct, he is talking about how we interact one with another. And that's why I have been stressing so much lately what Christ himself said, that what you do to each other, I will consider having been done to me, whether it be good or whether it be bad, positive or negative, and I will judge you thereby. So it has to do with mercy extended to us. It has to do with forgiveness extended to us. How we conduct ourselves among ourselves is where our judgment comes. And I think we need to be very aware of that. Because that is how God looks at us. How do you conduct yourselves with each other? If you're alone, you don't lie. If you're alone, you don't steal. If you're alone, you don't murder. There are a lot of things you don't do if you're alone. Or you're not even tempted to do because there's no one to do it to. So follow that thought through. And when he says, when you order your conduct correctly, it will lead to salvation. So this is all about how we conduct ourselves among ourselves and to fellow human beings because it reflects, then, the true relationship that we have with God. Now we come after this admonition, and that is what these last few verses of Psalm 50 are, an admonition, an encouragement to do a certain thing. And right after that, then, we have Psalm 51, which is referred to quite often, uh, that prayer which we have said over the years was the prayer of David after his sin with Bathsheba. Now that may have been the case. It's easy to read that into it based on the conduct of it, or the, the content, excuse me, of it. Uh, it may or may not have been in truth. Uh, it does reflect the heartfelt repentance and feelings of someone who knows that his conduct has not been correct. And I want to approach it today more from an analytical standpoint than an emotional one. I know I have many times come to Psalm 51 as my own personal confession booth, and I'm sure you have as well, when things in your life needed to be overhauled, repaired, or whatever. This is a good one to come to because it does reflect the inner feelings that we can have. And Psalm 51 then can be a very, very emotional chapter in God's Word. And we could approach it that way today, and I could hammer on us to repent, but I don't think I want to approach it that way. I want to approach it from the standpoint of the flow of the Psalms and how it fits in with the preceding chapters and with the ensuing chapters. So let's look upon it that way and analyze the content of it here, because if the emotion is there when it becomes a confessional uh, prayer of our own, we need to analyze and understand exactly what is being said and why it is being said 
and what the portent is for today, because believe it or not, by the time we get to the end of this particular psalm, we're going to see that it is a prophecy for today, as much as it was a plea for forgiveness on the behalf of the psalmist at the time. Now, we find ourselves facing chapter 50 in the end of it, just like every generation has, and just as Christ and Paul and the other apostles talked about backbiting and hurting and slandering one another, uh, instead of encouraging and strengthening, realizing that we are all the children of God, and who are we to speak against our mothers, the church, and our fathers in heaven, children? You know, you get very, very upset if someone says something negative about your children, don't you? It hurts you, it bothers you when someone speaks evil of your children. That is a natural reaction. Perhaps it needs to be controlled, but it is a natural reaction of a parent. Well, God is our parent overall, and in a greater and deeper sense than any of us can understand. We can partially see the mystery of God in our own families, but we cannot grasp entirely the depth of the relationship that God intends between He and His Son and us, the prospective bride, and the children of God as well. So when anyone slanders us, it really, really bothers God. Whether it's Satan accusing us before his throne, or us accusing one another here on the earth. And I think we here need to sometimes lighten up. We understand the standard that God puts our feet to. We understand individually that we fall short, as we're about to see in Psalm 51. And yet it is difficult for us to allow someone else to fall short without becoming critical or judgmental or looking down upon them. It is almost as if we place ourselves in God's position and presume to make those feelings about others known when that is God's judgment, not ours. But it is so very, very easy within a family. It's easy for the children to fight among themselves. It's easy for parents to have to be the go-betweens. We have the same spiritual difficulties in the spiritual family of God that a physical family has within itself. Now, when you ta attack a family that allows themselves to fight among themselves, from the outside, they all rally to each other's side and defend one another. It's okay if they fight among themselves, but don't you dare say anything. Now, God wants us to jump it up one. He wants us to come to the point that we are unified and close and do not fight among ourselves. And let Him be our judge instead of us judging one another in a negative sense. 
because he does tell us it will come down upon us exactly as we treat each other. And to me, that's scary. We need to conduct ourselves correctly. And again, conduct has to do essentially with other people. And that's what he's saying. Now let's look at this prayer in Psalm 51 with that background and within those parameters and see what David has to say. Now undoubtedly he had sinned or was analyzing his entire life, and we'll see that in here as well, which he considered sinful. He did not consider himself righteous. You know, the Pharisees and Sadducees in Christ's day did. But he did not. That's why he was a man after God's own heart, because he was capable of introspectively introspectively looking at himself and seeing the flaws within. And that's what this prayer is about. It's not about the flaws of others. It was about the flaws within. And there's where we need to concentrate individually and personally, because you can't really do anything about anybody else's either except grumble about them. You can only do something about your own. That's all we can do. And set an example then for others that they might be helped and strengthened by the example. Have mercy upon me, O God. First thing in the prayer is a request for mercy. Remember the analogy that Christ made between the Pharisee who would look up to God and say, I fast twice in the week, I study my Bible, I pray before I go out in the morning, and I'm here to tell you about it. Uh, he says, no. I look to the man who stands with his head bowed and said, I am not even worthy of prayer or looking up to you. Totally different. So that is the attitude that David had in beginning this psalm. Perhaps the reality of what Nathan had told him about him being the man who had sinned and taken the man's one little lamb namely Bathsheba, uh, was on his mind here, and perhaps this is the juncture at which he made this prayer. But that is only an assumption as far as I know. But it certainly was a time of very deep, insightful, uh, concerned prayer to his Father in heaven. So he calls for mercy. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. So, in analyzing that, before he even mentions his transgressions, he asks for mercy because he knows he needs it. And he reminds God of how merciful God is. I don't think that that's a bad way to approach God. I know you're merciful. I know you love. I know you love me. Uh, Now I'm going to talk to you about something here that uh, is a problem between us. So... Even in our personal relationships, isn't it good to approach one another humbly and meekly rather than having our acts out when we come to see each other? And I'm going to straighten you out. No, an attitude of mercy and of love and of kindness would be the way to approach it. We will have better success that way, whether we're talking to man or to God, guaranteed. Guaranteed. 
It isn't always easy for us to do, but that's what we should, before we approach one another, come to have the approach of in order to perhaps get their attention rather than just causing their pride, ego, vanity, and defenses to arise immediately because we're in attack mode. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he wanted his transgression blotted out. He wanted his iniquity removed and to feel clean again because at this point he obviously was not feeling clean. Acknowledged his sin. Verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. It has been said many, many times that until we get past denial, we cannot overcome or change anything. Now that's said by the world's uh, psychologists and different ones who are dealing with people with various types of addictions. So, so often we tend to be in denial. And I think that if this was a prayer of David at that juncture of his life with Bathsheba, uh, probably he had been in denial. And Nathan brought it to him and made him see in a very gentle and careful way. He helped him see that he had sinned. So, Sometimes we have to look at ourselves and determine really what is our sin. Because some things are fairly easy to determine, but things such as being self-righteous and judgmental are very, very difficult for the individual to see. It's easier for someone else sometimes to see it in you than it is for us to see it in ourselves. But he was looking at self only here. I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is always there. I know what I am. I know what my problem is. (coughs) Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now our sin really, all of it, is truly against God, is it not? It's His laws. It's his way of life. Now, the conduct that we do that is wrong is often toward other human beings. But it's God's other human beings. It's God's children. It's God's plan. It's God's universe. It's God's law. It's his way of life. So the sin ultimately goes back against God, because any infraction we make toward another human being is idolatry. It is putting our selfish desire, our pride, our envy, our ego, ahead of God's law. And if we put anything ahead of God's law, we're putting it ahead of God, because He is love. He is the essence of His laws. His laws only codify or write down what his character is. That's what they are. They are a definition of God. So even though he may have had Uriah killed, had taken his wife, David had many, many other sins as well. 
Their sin really, ultimately, was against God, and it was idolatry. That you might be justified when you speak, and be clear when you judge. So he says, I know, and I bring my case to you, because I may have sinned against others, and we all do, don't we? We make mistakes, we say wrong things, we hurt feelings, we do all kinds of things that are contrary to the the health and welfare of each other. But it's really all against God. It's against His way of life. So He can be clear when He judges. Then He thinks back. Verse 5, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. That doesn't mean He was illegitimate. What he's saying is, from the time I was conceived, the sin began to grow in me. Now, we in the mother's womb don't sin. We're not conscious yet in that sense that we could sin. But a human being is being formed there, and that human being is going to be a sinner shortly after it's born. It is our makeup. It is human. It is natural for a human being to go against God. From the time the DNA comes together, sin is inevitable. Selfishness is inevitable. It's not that we did sin. It's that we, by nature, are sin. The human mind is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We cannot then say, I am good, but once in a while I sin. No, I am by nature evil, and only with the Spirit and the help of God can I do good. Because apart from the Spirit of God, even that which is, we would say, good that we do, is essentially selfish in nature, we do for others to get something in return. That's why he says, don't let your left and your right hand know what the other one is doing, because essentially it is human to always keep score and to count who's ahead in this deal, who owes who a favor, who did what for who, and why, since I did so much for you, won't you do something for me? We are by nature scorekeepers. That's just the way we tend to be. So he's letting it all hang out to God here. Even from my very beginning, he says. How long does it take a a baby to show selfishness after it's born? I was in the nice warm womb, and now I'm out in the cold, and I'm hungry, and I just pooped my britches, and I'm mad. Doesn't take long, does it? Goes immediately to self and my needs, my wants, my comfort. The first, I mean, the first breath when cold air hits the body or the doctor's hand hits the buttocks or whatever, the first thing you hear is a wail. We come into the world screaming about things because we want it right for us. So, what David is saying here is so very, very true. And then it becomes what? (laughs) A lifelong battle. A lifelong battle. 
Verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you shall make me to know wisdom. So it isn't the outward, but it's the inward that God is concerned about and what's going on inside the head, the mind, the psyche, the heart of an individual. And that's why he said to the Pharisees, you polish the outside of the cup and make it look pretty good, but within, it's nasty. Or you polish the sepulcher and inside are dead men's bones. So David's getting right to the heart of the matter here. Clean yourself up from the inside out. That's what really counts. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Reminds me of my aunt and that bar of lava soap. I can still almost taste it. Uh, she wanted to purge my mouth when I said something evil. No, that was my cousin. That couldn't have been me. Had to, you know, joke. But we have to be cleaned up. Make me to hear joy and gladness <clears throat> that your bones which you have broken may rejoice. So we find ourselves down, we find ourselves sinful, we find ourselves in a bad situation, and being selfish and whatever uh, our human minds and Satan's way take us, and we want to be joyful. That's one of the fruits of God's Spirit, is joy. But our nature drags us down from joy, because the things that we think we want to do, that we think would make us happy become a burden and a conscience problem, and on and on it goes. Only the way of God will make us ultimately joyful. And the things that we think we want to do that might, we think, make us happy are very transitory. They don't last long, and then the happiness turns to frustration. Hold your face, or hide your face, excuse me, from your sins and blot out all my iniquities. Well, we want God to turn His face from us. And it is His, I mean, turn His face away from our sins. We want Him to look upon us with happiness and joy. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So He was fighting His attitude, obviously, and had had some thoughts of evil and selfishness in his heart that he was trying to work out, trying to get rid of, trying to change what was on the inside that was harmful and hurtful and was contrary to God. And he feared, verse 11, because of whatever conduct he was discussing in his life and in his inner being and what makes us up as a human being. He was afraid that God would reject him and turn from him. So he said, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And that's pretty much where we've been in the church. God has blown it apart. He has hidden his face from us, he says. And we want him to turn it back and him to take joy and gladness and happiness with us. And bless us and make us secure and strong and happy ourselves. That's the state of mind and emotion we would love to have. But it is not easy to come by. And it is obvious right here that that is the case. What did we read back there in 1 Peter? My, I think it was in 1 Peter 5 where Terry was reading a while ago. Um, 
Verse 10. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto His eternal glory by Christ Emmanuel. We've been called to salvation, just as Psalm 1 and 2 open up with a call to salvation. He's called us to eternal glory by Christ Emmanuel. After that, you have suffered a while. will make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. So... Paul recognized the same thing here, or Peter did, the same thing here, that we have a goal, we have a purpose to be in the kingdom of God, and yet we have to suffer a while on this earth before we can be perfected, before we can be established, strengthened, and settled. It just takes that for human beings. It, it, that's just the way we are. You can't get there without it. Through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. So here was a man who was struggling with himself as a human being, just as you and I struggle. If you will restore the joy of salvation, remove the fear and the discouragement, he says, and uphold me with your free spirit, that which you willingly give, that which you want to give, and which we tend to squelch. Paul even said, quench not the spirit. But God wants to give it to us freely. He wants us to walk in spirit and in truth. And yet, because of our nature, we tend to quench the spirit. So he said, uphold me with it. Don't take it from me. Well, David recognized the Spirit of God in a way that very few in the Old Testament did. And the Spirit of God was extended to him, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and a few of the patriarchs in a way that the rest of the world never was offered. So he says, if you can do this for me, he's kind of making a deal here. He's not threatening God. He's not blackmailing God. He is from the heart trying to get things right between him and God so that he can then accomplish something. The thought at the beginning here is inward because of the problems involved with himself. He wanted the problem solved not just for his own personal peace of mind and happiness. He wanted the relationship with God restored for a purpose. Now we need to consider that in our present circumstance in that we have been put here to be a light to the world. We have been put here to be an example to the rest of the world and all of us throughout the church to each other to help one another. And that is what was on David's mind. He is looking at this from a leadership standpoint. He was king of Israel. And he had responsibilities and a job to do. And he knew that he was getting in his own way. Now, let us look at it here today from that standpoint. You are called, we are called, to be kings and priests. We are called to rule with Christ a thousand years on this earth. So God has placed us 
in the same position David was in, to be kings and priests, to rule the earth. And to do that, we must get rid of self, we must get rid of sin, we must become the example that is needed to get this world out of sin. Houston, there's a problem. It is not easy to do. We can have the goal, we can have the purpose, but accomplishing it requires a certain amount of suffering in the meantime before we will ever achieve. And he was going through some suffering here as a result of his own sins, not just of the sins that he may have specifically committed, but of the sin that dwells within. It is not a matter of what we have done, so much as a matter of what we are. It is what we are that causes us to commit specific sins. If we were not sinful by nature, and deceitful by nature, then we wouldn't sin. So it isn't necessarily always a matter of what you've done, it's what you are that causes you to be what you are. And do what you do. He wants that cleaned up. So it says, if we can get our relationship right, then I'm going to work on my relationship also with the kingdom before me. Verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. How can we rule the earth as kings and priests... And teach them not to sin if we continue in sin. Then you have hypocrisy. And that doesn't work. So we have to be established and perfected, as Peter put it. And it takes suffering to accomplish that. How did Christ learn? By the things that he suffered. Now, he was, had been God... He had been perfect, but he was born a human being, and he had human nature. He wanted to sin. He wanted to sin as much as you and I have ever wanted to sin, okay? That is a hard concept for some people to understand. They just think of him as God walking the earth. He came as a human being. And he was tempted in all points, all points, like as we are. Now, for temptation to have an effect, it has to be actual temptation. I mean, let's say somebody puts before you, oh, what could I say? Ice cream? Maybe that's a bad one because there are rarely anyone who doesn't like it. But let's just use it. Somebody puts ice cream before you and you hate the stuff, you're not tempted to partake of it. Or a cigarette. Maybe you tried one once when you were young and it made you sick or made you cough, and you didn't like it at all, and somebody lights a cigarette and hands it to you, you're simply not tempted. 
if you don't like what is being offered, and it would not bring pleasure to you, you could care less. Now, if you've smoked all your life, and they just lit up your favorite brand, and they hand it to you, you're tempted. You want it. And what I'm saying is, Christ wanted it. Had he not had desire for the things that were before him as a human being, there would have been no temptation. So, all that was there that has ever tempted you or me, he wanted. His human mind, feelings, and emotions wanted it. As badly as any of us have ever wanted to do something we should not. Otherwise, we have no Savior. Now, that is something that he had never encountered sitting at the right hand of the Father. He had to come to this earth, and he had to go through the difficulties that you and I face every day in every way. And he had to triumph over them in every case and never, ever give in. And only by the Spirit and the power of Almighty God, to whom he prayed regularly, was he able to withstand. But he did. This prayer is not just about David, just like the rest of these psalms we've been reading is not just about, are not just about David or whoever wrote the particular ones. They are about Christ himself. Now, the absolute specifics here about my bones being broken, uh, his were not. His flesh was stripped off. He could see his bones. They were not broken. But in a metaphorical sense, they were. He was broken down. He was destroyed. There was no strength in his bones. But certainly, the feelings that David expresses here were the feelings that Christ himself had to deal with. Because temptation was constantly in his mind, his emotions, his body. And he knew that if he gave in to his human nature, he would be just as big a sinner as anybody else. And he knew he could not give in. So David himself, who wrote this, was inspired by the Father and the Son to write what he wrote because some of the things that are in this prayer are the introspective feelings that Christ had to deal with leading up to his crucifixion. And he was counting on resurrection from our sins so that he could teach the congregation. And you know what? After he was resurrected, he became the chief cornerstone of the church. He is teaching us, guiding us, and leading us to this day. And teaching in the great congregation. It doesn't say that yet. Let's go on. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. He is our high priest today, as the book of Hebrews clearly points out. 
He is our intercessor, our mediator before the Father. And when we have problems and when we come to pray, He intercedes for us, saying, Father, I know exactly what that person is going through. I was there, did that. I didn't give in like that one did, but boy, I'll tell you what, it was tough. Have mercy. Isn't it nice to have Him there to intercede for us? I'll teach transgressors your ways. And He has appointed, He trained apostles to teach the church, and He worked through those apostles. And He still, to this day, works through the ministry that He has appointed to help teach His people what they need to know, what His words say. Sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, you God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. What a relief when we truly repent from the heart to realize that truly the, the penalty has been removed and we can stand and feel close to God again. That is such a wonderful feeling. And we feel like singing aloud of His righteousness. But you've got to get past the blood guiltiness and the bad conscience and all the hurt that you go through before you can begin to feel that way. And know that things are right between you and God. Well, where had the sin been? He says against God, but it was really against people. Because it was people he was dealing with on a day-to-day basis. Did he lie to God? Well, not in a sense. He, he lied to Uriah. He lied to those around him. He killed, but it was people he killed. It was not God. But the problem in his mind and conscience and his emotions was about God. I know I've sinned against people, but it was truly against you, not them. So he had to get it right with God and quit sinning against people. And then he was there. He said, I'm here to help people, not hurt people. Why am I hurting people? Forgive me, Father. Help me do it right instead of wrong. You know, we know we're here to help people, but sometimes we hurt them. And then we have to be sorry for the things that our big blabbering mouths sometimes say. O Eternal, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. James said the tongue is so hard to control, no man can do it. If you, do, if you control your tongue perfectly, then you're a perfect man. So, David had trouble with it. He wanted his lips to say the things that are good and right, instead of things that were evil. For you desire not sacrifice, else would I give it. You delight not in burnt offering. He could have butchered and fried a bunch, or roasted a bunch of bulls and goats and so on. That's not what God wants. And in fact, in Romans 12, 1, in the New Testament tells us he wants a living sacrifice. Us to give of ourselves to others. Now that's what he's saying here. Not in exactly the same words, but Paul may have taken what he said from some of these scriptures. You delight not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
as opposed to ego, pride, vanity, and self. Those things he does not like. But a contrite, meek, humble, broken spirit is what he seeks. And that is the very first thing out of Christ's mouth in Matthew 5 when he begins that Sermon on the Mount. The attitude of heart and mind that we need to have. The meek, the humble, the merciful, the kind, the forgiving, the loving is what he's after. So Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. David recognized the attitudes we ought to have. And when Christ started the New Testament church, his first teaching was about attitude. Get the attitude right. Now, if the attitude isn't right, you can force yourself to be nice to somebody. But if your own pride, ego, vanity, and self is in the way, it isn't real. It isn't genuine. It's got to be from the heart. You know, we can have our little squabbles and we can cover them over. We can try to make them better. And maybe we can sort of work together to one degree or another and not open those wounds that are there. But you know, if it doesn't heal from the inside out, it's liable to break out again. Unless you cleanse a wound to the depth, unless you get all the pus and the putrefaction out of it, and the skin heals over it, it will erupt again. So that's why he's saying here, I want to do this from the heart, from the very inside of me. From the moment my mother conceived me, this was in me. And I want it changed. I want it out. I want it cleansed and purified. We need, we must, eventually come to the point that it's all cleaned out from the inside out. Now that is not going to be perfectly done until our change come, when this mortal put on immortality. Now, Paul was still not a perfect man when he said, I have finished the course, I fought a good fight. It was a fight all the way. And that's what he's saying. And yet he had overcome and he had grown and he knew that the mercy of God was going to make up the difference at that point. But let us not forgive one another and retain within the attitude. Let's clean it out all the way down so that it can properly heal. That's what he's calling for here. The sacrifices of God are not a glib apology. They are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. He will not despise that. Then he says, do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build you the walls of Jerusalem. Now, that is an interesting comment for him to make at this point. Because during David's reign, the walls of Jerusalem were intact. It was essentially a strong administration. He had his enemies. He had his detractors. 
But David himself, through most of his life and throughout his kingship, was essentially close to God. A man after God's own heart. Yes, he messed up at times. But essentially, that's who he was. And he will be king over all Israel. So God recognized David's repentance and how he repented from the inside out. And that's what God was looking for in him. So, what we have here is a prophecy. After Solomon's reign, the kingdom would go into ruin. It would need to be revived. We, as the church, read Hebrews 12, 22, and 23 again, are spiritual Jerusalem. The walls have been broken down. The Zion, the perfection of beauty that we are to be, the towers of the Virgin, have been broken down. They need to be healed. They need to wake up. They need to be imbued and filled with the Spirit of God that they might be strong and stand on a hill and be a light to the world. So David stood with the walls about him, with Zion, wherever it was, intact. So he had to be talking about a future time, along with to one degree or another, a realization that he himself was far from perfect and that the Jerusalem he lived in, even though the walls were there, his personal walls had been breached by sin and needed to be cleaned up and all Israel needed to be cleaned up. So he saw within his own kingdom a need for growth in the spiritual walls because this is spiritual he's essentially talking about. And yet I think that it carries forward, and we'll see that as we go on more, that there's a time not only the physical walls of Jerusalem will be broken down, but now the spiritual walls. Or should I say, it's not just the spiritual walls today in the church, but Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel and other places show that even physical Jerusalem would be broken down for many generations. And that it would have to be rebuilt. And indeed, the most prophetic book of all books, well, Daniel and Revelation combined, say that the walls of Jerusalem in the end time have to be built back within the 70-week prophecy. So, there has to be in the end time a broken down Jerusalem that has to have its walls rebuilt. Now, if the true Jerusalem has been broken down for many generations, I would presume that that is the one that has to be rebuilt because the walls of the Jerusalem in the Middle East are there intact today. I've walked on them. They're there. How do you rebuild a wall when the wall is there? Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Now, he says that he is going to protect his people in Zion and that he will do good to them and that he will, will rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and then the abomination of desolation will be set up 
tribulation will begin that day. Three and a half years of it. The day that the abomination is set up in the temple of God, in the city of God, or the city of David. Both have to be reestablished. Do you begin to see then why it is that God needs a microcosm of the millennium, a small example of what His rule is going to be like? Because the witness of the end-time church is not just against the sin of the world, but it is a witness of what must be and shall be. The contrast has to be made between good and evil. Not just telling people they're evil, but showing them a glimpse of what ought to be. You do not have a full gospel, a full message, until you can show the contrast between good and evil. If you only tell people they are evil, they don't know what to do about it. If you show them something better, you are telling them this won't work, but this will. Then you have a full message. It does no good for me as I have today to read these Scriptures and tell us we're evil from the moment we're conceived and will be selfish unless and until acted upon by the Spirit of God unless I can show you a reason to overcome that human nature and become something better. Because the promise and the reward for it is real. And that we take then hope and faith in that, which gives us impetus then to change us from what we are to what we need to be. You need that full message. To tell us we're evil accomplishes nothing unless we can see that there's something better to come. We need both those messages combined. And that is what the end-time witness must do. Not just the two. It has to be established in the mouth of two at least. But the end-time witness of the faithful remnant of God, set on a hill that cannot be hid, is what the world must see. Now, that is the reason there needs to be Jerusalem rebuilt, the temple rebuilt, and even sacrifices reinstituted. Because it is a microcosm of the kingdom of God when Christ returns. And Isaiah makes it very clear there will be animal sacrifices, at least at the beginning of the millennium, to teach Carnal people, penalty for sin, and how it can be absolved. You and I do not need the blood of bull and goats even more, any more than David did who understood. But the world has to see a small room, a small example of what is to come 
And then they will understand. They will hate it. But they can see. I think then that we probably will need to have animal sacrifices, not for our benefit, but as an example to the world of what is about to transpire when Christ really returns in glory to rule the earth. We have to create, with God's help, a little millennium. It will only last a short while, but I do believe it will, control, it will contain all the elements of the kingdom of God that is about to come. So when David says, I will preach in the great congregation the glory of God, and that he will do good in his good pleasure to Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem, it is a direct prophecy that carries through all the way until today, and not only to today, but very soon now, tomorrow, where we are called upon to do what David is talking about here. We are called upon to repent from the inside out, to turn to God with all our heart, that we might be able to be an example to the rest of the world of what the kingdom of God shall be like. Does that give us a little better feel, a little better grasp of what the end time work is all about? Herbert Armstrong's work was very limited. It was limited to essentially a peaceful calling of people to a give way of life, which is ultimately truly important. Not selfish, not getting, but giving. That is the message that he delivered. Now with it in the early years came also some Ezekiel and Jeremiah and that this nation would go down. But that did not last long. He preached that in the 50s, maybe in the very beginning of the 60s. But then he switched to the give-get philosophy. And God used him to call many people to the give way of life. Now, it was not a total conversion. And we slipped back into very easily or never really got out of the get-way. Now, God is calling here at the end time. For a remnant of those called 10%, I won't go through all the scriptures again now, to truly take Psalm 51 to heart. To repent from the inside out of the selfishness that we have all partaken of and are by nature. And to start looking outward to give and serve and help everyone we can and be an example to this world. Because Herbert Armstrong's job, again, was limited. It was to call us to the give way of life. Now we're getting down to the brass tacks. Now's the time not to talk about it, but to live it. Not to talk about stopping backbiting one another, but to stop. Literally, stop. Hearers do not much good 
It is the doers of the word. God is calling a faithful remnant. The ones that will live, that will walk the walk, not talk the talk. Now I know we know this, but I want to reemphasize it in this context. That there is a mighty work to be done. And the mighty work basically involves us showing God's glory before the world by our conduct and the things He uses us for to build a city of God on a hill. Now, we'll get into it, but I think I'm pretty well convinced it has to be on the original hill. It has to be in the original Zion. It has to be the place where God originally set His name. Within the promised land, the land that God would give to His people, in the end time, in the latter days, as the prophecy is put in Genesis 48 and 9 and other places. We'll get into more of that later, but it is certainly touched upon here. <clears throat> and he gives us the attitude of mind we should have, even as Christ does in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, when he began his teaching here on this earth. It, is, it has its roots all the way back here. Verse 19, then, and only then, but when we get things built back spiritually and ultimately physically the way they are supposed to be, then shall you be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then shall, you offer, or shall they offer bullocks upon your altar. We will offer our bodies our minds as living sacrifices. But it may be that the Ezekiel temple, which has never been built, will be built, and that even the blood of bulls and goats will be offered to show people what will be when Christ and we take over the rulership of the world. It will be a very interesting time. So we go from an admonition in verse 50 to treat each other the way God would treat His children, and then a recognition of where we lack and what we need to do and how it needs to become outward rather than inward, give instead of get again. Then let's pick it up in chapter 20, uh, 52, because with this acknowledgement then, we see that everything is not yet perfect. Why boast yourself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. You know, we need to begin to recognize from within what we lack. But we still have this world around us that is full of vanity, ego, and pride, and boasting about how great they and their society are. We even have it within the church, spiritual Israel where there are those who boast that they are Philadelphians and perhaps the only ones and everyone else is beneath them. Why boast yourself like a Pharisee? Why not recognize the filth within and bow your head like the publican and not even be able to lift your eyes to God because you know, and you know that you know, 
that you're not what you ought to be. When we begin to comprehend and grasp that, then we can make some progress. When we criticize and put each other down because of the judgments we make about evil, another child of God, if you will, is, then we are not doing what is said here. Then we are comparing ourselves among ourselves and putting ourselves above others. And we are to be really esteeming others better than ourselves, Paul tells us in Thessalonians. So within God's church today and in this congregation and within each and every one of us, why do we boast ourselves? Now we can say easily, I'm not perfect, I know I have my faults, just don't tell me what they are. There's self-protection and self-defense within us, and that's why. We react with ego and anger and frustration, and that's why we approach each other to point out each other's problems with anger and selfishness and frustration. Why do we boast ourselves like the world? The goodness of God endures continually. God is always the same way. His goodness is always there. It's us that have the problem. And it's not them that have the problem. It's not the other churches. It's us. It's always easy to say, that person or those people have a problem. That's not what this is about. This is about each and every one of us looking at ourselves and seeing the evil and the rot and deception and humanness of ourselves, not anyone else, and boasting ourselves in whatever twisted way our human nature does to be better than they in some way. Comparing ourselves among ourselves is not wise. In fact, it is evil and wrong. And every last one of us does it, brethren. And that's why we're here in the Psalms. I think God led us here because He wants you and me, not those other groups out there, He wants you and me, every one of us here, individually, to look at Psalm 51 the way David looked at it and the way Christ looked at it, and then to look at Psalm 52 in the right perspective as well. If you really get down to the nitty-gritty with Psalm 51, then you're not going to have near as much problem with Psalm 52. Why boast yourself in mischief, O mighty man? The goodness of God endures continually. Your tongue devises mischiefs, like a sharp razor working deceitfully. So he said in chapter, end of chapter 50, don't slander each other, don't hurt each other, don't talk down about each other. Oh yeah, but I need to vent. Really? Is it a need or is it a want? I want to vent and therefore I shall vent. 
Now, if we were looking at it from God's perspective, we would be venting about whom? We might approach our brother and vent about what I am inside, not about what you or he is inside. Follow me? I am a dirty, rotten sinner. I need your prayers. Not you better go repent and pray. If you vent, vent about you. Don't vent about somebody else. I'm tired of venting and listening to venting. And so are you. Well, let's do something. He tells us we got a bad tongue in chapter 50. He tells us to examine self, not anybody else. And then he says, I don't think you got it. Why do you and the rest of mankind still boast? And why is your tongue still like a sharp razor working deceitfully? You love evil more than good and lying rather than to speak righteousness. Stop. Think about this. Selah. You love all devouring words, O you deceitful tongue. I suppose everybody that read this, after it was written in David's kingdom, probably overcame it and never was a problem again. Well, then why does James 3 in the New Testament start talking about how if you can control the tongue, you're a perfect person? We all still sin with the tongue. Some of us may use our tongue. Some of us are quieter by nature. Some of us don't say some of those things, maybe because of personality. But does that always mean that it doesn't go through your mind and heart? You know, some people's sins are out front. And others follow behind. They come out later. They're harder to see, in other words. Those of us who are big mouths... I said us, didn't I? Those of us who talk a lot and in much speech lacks not sin. The more you waggle your tongue, the more you're going to sin with it because that's just the way it is. That doesn't mean that it can't be inside and you might think it, just not say it. That's why it has to be cleaned up from the inside out. You love all devouring words, O you deceitful tongue. God shall likewise destroy you forever. He shall take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and root you out of the land of the living. Think about that. The righteous also shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. All right, he's contrasting then. And this is the end time. Those who will heed those who will change, and those who will not. Those who will read Psalm 51 and literally self-examine and get it cleaned up between them and God and then go out and help each other. That's what this is all about. 
we must come to have the true love of God. Not just like our family or like people that we like to like, but that we can show the love of God to everyone. God hates sin. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the one he loved the very most, for sinners. Now, we like those who like us, and we like to have our little friends, and our little cliques, and our little families. But God's love transcends all that, and we need to understand that and come to have the true love of God, not just human emotion. God's love is a lot bigger than that. He loved the entire world, including Hitler and Mussolini, and whoever else you want to name that on the world stage men despised. He loved us all, no matter who. And his sacrifice of his son is there for every human being who has ever lived and drawn breath on the face of this earth. And they'll have their opportunity within his plan. Verse 7, Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his own riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. Oh, I'm all right, you know. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. Trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Olives produce good fruit. Be like a green olive tree, a live one, that produces oil. Oil is symbolic of the Spirit of God. Olives, then, are symbolic of the Spirit of God. Let's be like live, flourishing olive trees producing good fruit. Trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. We'll get to a psalm later on that says over and over again, His mercy endures forever. Thank God that it does. And David, when he began that prayer, the first thing he asked was for God's mercy. I will praise you forever because you have done it, and I will wait on your name for it is good before your saints. So a follow-up to that introspective prayer is one about those who will continue on in their selfish way and those who will repent and turn to God and produce the kind of fruit He wants. So you can read Psalm 51. You can refer to it often. But unless you do something about it, then you fall in the negative side of Psalm 52. Psalm 52 shows both sides, the good and the evil, those who will do good and those who won't, those who will cleanse themselves from the inside out and then turn and help others, all others, not just the ones they like. Didn't Christ say, if you do good for your friends only? He said, love your enemies. Do good to them that persecute you and despitefully use you. I didn't say that exactly right. We are to not stay away from those that we have grievances 
about, but we are to proactively seek out and find a way to do good to them and for them. Love your enemies. That is contrary to human nature. Totally contrary to human nature. To truly love your enemies. That requires the agape love of God. Because you, as a human being, cannot summon the strength of character or the will or the attitude to truly love your enemies. You can love your family. You can love your friends. That's natural. That's human. To love your enemies requires a leap from human reaction to godly reaction. This might be a good place to stop because we have work to do.